With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Thank you, Leslie. Thank really. You. We are, um, this is a great tradition. Um, a tradition that uh, I have pursued for these many years with Eric Cohn, who actually showed up today. Hello, Eric. <laughs> we miss you. Um, but the, the recent uh, cohort that I've been hanging out with is Ryan Latanzio right here. And I am very proud and very happy to announce that he is going to be the permanent co-host of IndieWire's Screen Talk. Ryan and I have known each other a long time, uh, but he is someone who is smarter than me and knows know an that. enormous amount for someone so young. And he isn't as young as he looks. He's actually been at IndieWire for like five years, and he worked with me before that at Thompson and Hollywood. Um, when did you, what was your first piece for us? Uh, I believe my first piece for you was a very pretentiously written review of Cosmopolis, the David Cronenberg film, because that was, um, I had just graduated college, and that year I was sent to Cannes through a scholarship um, through the, the French consulate in San Francisco, and that's how I ended up connecting with you, because I needed to, um, I served on a jury at Cannes, and I needed to have an outlet to write for, and yeah, that was the first piece I wrote, and you know, I was a student of literary theory, if you will, and at 22, I would say that my my prose was operatic um, to my detriment, and so I'm sure if I were to even look back at that piece, I would not even recognize it, but yes, that You that were always very good, and what you had was a certain ability to engage readers, which was which is a real thing. Some people have it, and some people don't. And uh, by the way, please stay tuned, because we have a special guest coming, an industry luminary is going to be joining us, and we're going to have some fun with him. <laughs> um, so... Um, to begin with, Ryan, we've been looking at a couple of, no, the piece I remember is I was a canned virgin. Canned virgin, yes. Because <laughs> I was a canned virgin, and I, that was the end. I mean, that was my canned virginity gone, and I, I have not returned to the festival since, so uh, it was immortalized in that very year. Someday, someday. Okay. Um, so we are uh, at the New York Film Festival, obviously, and I have been enjoying seeing, uh, catching up on some of the things I missed. I saw the Aki Kurismaki, Fallen Leaves, which I loved. And I found out recently, did you see it? I did, yes. That you saw it at Cannes. Back, no, 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 no. I saw, it, I saw it here last weekend. He went to Venice. Yes. He went to Venice. Yes. And it did not play Venice, but it was at Cannes. Okay. So this was uh, a movie that was submitted by Finland, and uh, it is... It is a small, quiet, working class romance. Um, and apparently, it, is so, it was made on such a small scale that the actors actually did everything in one take, in the first take, everything in that film, which is pretty remarkable. Yeah, I mean, this is a movie that takes, I really like this movie, but this is definitely a movie that takes the concept of droll to the extreme. That's him. Uh, That's Karismaki. Yes. And if you are not, if you are not on the Karismaki wavelength, then this will not be for you. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. 
Um, I saw the Hamaguchi, um, which is another quiet movie. Uh, this is the, the, the director of Drive My Car, uh, which got a lot of Oscar attention. It is a very different movie, a very quiet, rural uh, parable of what happens when uh, the big city intrudes on the country. Uh, yeah, what's interesting about this movie, and he has, um, Hamaguchi has spoken to this, but you can tell immediately this is what happened, is that he shot this movie almost in secret after Drive My Car, almost sort of retreating because he felt really overexposed during that whole like awards mechanism, like the whole I'll be on the road for Drive My Car. And, you know, he's come out and said, like, I don't want this. Like, I'm not trying to be a superstar director. Like, I just want to make the movies that I want to make. And so Evil Does Not Exist was a sort of return to form for him in this way. And it is a very quiet, you know, minimalist movie. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, what else have you loved? Well, the one that I really liked, which is Chile's submission for the International Feature Oscar, is The Settlers by Felipe Galvez Aberle, uh, who is a first-time director. This is his first feature, and it's pretty incredible what he achieves with this movie. It takes place in the late 19th century, and it follows a, vix a various mix of natives, um, a Chilean guide, um, you know, English um, colonists, seeking to reclaim um, Chilean land, but then, of course, it turns into this sort of very high, highly stylistic bloodbath, almost. Um, it's funny, like, my colleagues at work know that whenever somebody, maybe this is a bad example, whenever, like, a Steven Yoon or something is announced for Thunderbolts, I'll go, well, he's gone. And so this guy, Felipe, I immediately, I'm like, I, like I hope they don't get him, because, like, he's a really, like... It's kind of amazing that this is his first feature. And so that's definitely one you should all check out. It's coming out from Mubi uh, later this year. I loved it. I saw it here. And uh, it was, it's a Western, is, is what it is. It's just interesting to see those Western tropes applied to Tierra del Fuego and the really beautiful landscapes and violence that uh, it's, it's, it's pretty depressing. Uh, the story, and but it's an eye-opener in terms of how we should be looking at our culture and every colonizing country in the world should be looking at what they did to their indigenous people. It's depressing, but the, you know, the aesthetics of it are exuberant and joyful and playful in their way, and so it doesn't have to be depressing. Okay, um, so we are also uh, disagreeing on a movie called All of Us Strangers. I looked it up. It's very, very high up on, on Metacritic. 95. It oh. is one of the most beloved movies of the year out of Toronto and Telluride. And it is extremely um, divisive as well because it, some people are having a backlash on it. Well, there's a couple of things with that movie. I mean, it, it, is, a, it is a ghost story um, because you, you're following Andrew Scott. He's living in this sort of... Um, limbo, kind of purgatorial, almost apartment complex. He's a screenwriter, He's, he lives a very lonely life. And he is communicating with the ghosts of his parents who died many years ago in a car accident. And these are the parents that he was not able to come out to as gay or be openly expressing himself as gay to when he was a kid. And now he's getting that chance to do so with their ghosts. Um, and so, and he also has a romantic um, encounter that maybe turns to some kind of love that he has not experienced in a while with a man played by, of course, Paul Meskel. Because he plays everything now. Um, 
Andrew Scott is extraordinary in this. It is the best thing he's ever done. He's never had the opportunity to show what he can do in a leading role like this. I mean, we may have enjoyed him in Fleabag, but this is a different order of things, a dramatic role. And um, the scenes with his parents are very moving. I was extremely moved by them. I cried because it's it's a little bit I hate to bring it up but it's a little bit like ghost it's a it's like an opportunity or field of dreams if you like it's an opportunity for him to, to act like he's a child and remember the hurts and and all the things that were done to him and then t what his parents didn't do for him and have it out with them it's yeah you cried but I laughed in fact I kind of got in trouble for laughing um, I found this movie to be extremely morose and sappy and corny, and I feel like I saw a completely different movie than everyone else did. However, here's what I will say a phenomenon is that is occurring with this movie. There is a faction of us, and we're getting stronger every day, of um, I think perhaps gay people my age that don't like this movie, um, and find it pandering and manipulative. But I noticed that a lot of like legacy, um, older gay critics really like it a lot because I think it does touch on this sort of generational self-loathing that you have as a gay person, right? And it touches on sort of coming out of the era of AIDS and sort of the fear around your own sexuality around that. But you know, these moments that are supposed to be really heartrending that he shares with his parents, I just they're, they're so cheesy. And this is a kind of movie that I feel like it's a Searchlight movie, so it will be on Hulu. I feel like when it's streaming, I could see parents watching it and then reaching out to like their estranged children that are queer and being like, oh, I'm so sorry. Like, how did I wrong you? You know? Is that okay? I mean, I don't, I don't know, I, I suppose. But for some people, maybe the gesture is not appreciated. Wow. Wow. I am going to predict that this is going to be an enormous hit and that it's going to do very well and it will be um, embraced widely. But maybe that 95 will come down a little oh, it's um, coming down. When, uh, when it opens. <laughs> so the other movie that I uh, saw at uh, Telluride that you finally caught up with is Saltburn. Saltburn. I, so Saltburn is this movie that I think is extreme. You know, it's Emerald Fennell's follow-up. Um, it is, in, you know, to her great Oscar success, Promising Young Woman. Promising Young Woman is a movie that I also loathed. I didn't respond to it at all. I thought it was overdone and too colorful and too bright and too art. You know, she was just going for broke, and, and it made no sense to me. Um, I thought Carrie Mulligan was extraordinary, of course. The, that, that goes without saying. So this is a similar situation where she's going for broke. She's going to make us, she's going to shock us. She's going to make us upset. She's going to take down the aristocracy and show us the, the, the way the other half lives and how loathsome they are. Um, and, and again, the actors deliver. Uh, you know, they're very good. It, 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 even Jacob Elordi is very good. Um, and, and Carrie Mulligan has a, a brief part, and she's very good. And of course, Barry Keegan is extraordinary and, and maybe gets nominated off of this. But I'm, I'm not sure this is an Oscar movie at all. I think it's entertaining, a crowd pleaser. People enjoy it. I'm not sure it's high, high enough quality to go all the way. No, I, don't, I agree with you. I don't think so. Um, it, it's funny, um, Peter de Bruges at Variety put it really well in his review that it's sort of, it's reflecting how it's like, it's all about the memification of movies. This is nothing against the cinematographer Linus Sundgren, but 
every shot in this movie feels like it's being generated to go on TikTok or to be repurposed or to be memefied. Uh, it doesn't hold together as an actual movie. As much as I really um, like this Carrie Mulligan character who's kind of this sort of dissipated woman um, who has a couple of really great lines. Rosamund Pike is hilarious. Um, Barry Cogan is great. But it's like, we get it. Emerald Fennell, we get it. Like, you really like the talented Mr. Ripley. And sort of that is what's happening here is we are, we are she is doing her homage or to that. Brideshead or Revisited. Um, so that's, that's basically, but you know, one of the things we, you can see coming out of, of New York is that, is that the word of mouth and the kind of uh, overall reaction that these movies get is making a big difference. And, and so uh, I would say um, All of Us Strangers, Maestro, Poor Things, these are the three big films to emerge with a lot of success. Well, what do we think about the zone of interest now, which has also also played New York? It's interesting. This Holocaust drama that is very—it's almost like a Michael Hanukkah movie in its distancing effect, and it—that's it, how it approaches it cinematographically. Um, but in fact, Paul Schrader, outspoken Facebook critic par excellence, he uh, actually had strong words for the movie, saying that he felt like it's sort of distancing effect in which it's almost shot like it's like closed circuit TV, right? It's like the cameras are static and they follow the actors. There's no intervention from the director with how the camera and it's navigates, you know, its relationship with the actors. But he feels like this is a parlor trick that actually there's nothing deep to explore underneath because what's underneath is what we already know, which is that Auschwitz is on the other side of this garden wall. I think this is one of the best movies I've ever seen in my life. It is, it, it, I was so devastated by it. At the end of, uh, I walked out and I couldn't talk. I, I was weeping. Um, so it has a cumulative effect. And if at the beginning of the movie, um, you see this sort of guy with a great deal of difficulty pushing a wheelbarrow full of food to deliver to the commandant, Haas and his wife, who live right next door to Auschwitz. And so you're seeing the whole thing from their point of view, from their household, from their uh, comfort. And you're seeing uh, this extraordinary performance from Sandra Huller. Um, there's a scene where, so you know that the guy who pushes the wheelbarrow is starving as he delivers this food. And all those little details add up as you watch it. And the way that they shot it was actually to hide about 10 cameras in this set. And to uh, they were tracking everything the actors did, and the actors were free to move from room to room and play out each scene, full 10 minutes, the whole thing, each take. And, and so that's, that's how they shot the movie. And, and that's why it looks the way it does, but I think it's a very effective a very effective technique. There's a, there's a scene where Sandra Huller is trying on a, a coat that is just devastating. It's a coat that belonged to one of the people who's being starved across the way. And she puts the lipstick on that she finds in the pocket. And she's in bed, like, giggling to her husband, like, oh, next time can you bring me some chocolates? Uh, no, this woman is a sociopathic, just awful, wretched person. But Sandra Huller embodies her really well. You know, you might be more optimistic than I am about where this movie is going to end up in terms of the Academy Award nominations. Well, it's submitted by uh, the UK. It's, it's a German language film, so they can do that. Uh, I should think it would end up in the top five, certainly, in best uh, international feature. Um, 
And Sandra Huller, if anything is right in the world, will get nominated. Uh, this one would be for supporting actress. She's also up for Anatomy of a Fall for Best Actress. And then I would think that this would be a potential for Best Picture, too. Yeah, I, I'm not I'm not as certain about that one. Only because this isn't as much as I love this movie and I love Jonathan Glazer, this is an art movie from the director of Under the Skin. And it does have those there are a few of those flourishes in there. Um, that I just even seeing it at the press screening here, I could see audiences struggling with some of those more sort of you might say artistic licenses that he takes. But uh yeah, I mean I love that movie too, so I'm 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 rooting for it all the way. And I honestly like I Saw it three weeks ago, and I think about it like every day. So no, I mean, I, when I was just talking, I got upset talking about it. So it's it's powerful. All right. So sadly, we lost a major filmmaker this week, and I know that um, Terrence Davies of the UK was somebody that you interviewed a few times. Oh yeah, I did. This actually, this was a hard one. I actually like broke down crying about this one just because I mean I love his work but I did interview I had the privilege and pleasure of interviewing him several times over the years and anyone who has interviewed him would say the same thing that he just is just like the kindest gentlest soul even though his movies can be sort of cruel and not gentle in their way and you know he he long lived this celibate lifestyle because he was self like he hated himself for being gay he always said like he he didn't how he felt like he was ugly, but he loved to laugh about this stuff in interviews, you know? Like he was so witty and self-deprecating and erudite about all of it. And it's unfortunate when a filmmaker dies that it then sort of becomes a call to action for people to experience their movies if they haven't. But if you haven't, I mean, his last movie from last year, Benediction, about the poet Siegfried Sassoon is just beautiful. Um, the Deep Blue Sea with Rachel Weisz is lovely. And then of course you can go back to the beginning of his career. This is a very autobiographical filmmaker who had a working class upbringing and since denounced Catholicism. And so these movies like The Long Day Closes and Distant Voices Still Lives really open a window into the person that he was. And yeah, I mean, he meant a lot to a lot of people. You could see on Twitter just the outpourings of how much everybody loved this guy. No, and, and the British critics really went to town as well. They cared about him. Yeah, but he wasn't as widely revered as you would think he would be in, in his day. Before we introduce our special guest, um, the negotiations uh, are continuing on the strike. Um, the actor's strike. Uh, they've been meeting every other day, and it seems to be making progress, and we're all sort of crossing our fingers and praying that this thing gets resolved soon. In the meantime, uh, the, there's a gaggle of producers who want the P on the AMPTP to be taken off because they figure that producers are being given a bad name uh, by being alongside the, uh, the organizing uh, negotiators of the studios and the streamers. In real life, there's a list of about 300 or so uh, production companies that are signatories to the AMPTP. Um, but the, the, in fact, the streamers and studios are a small number of that. But um, what do you think the solution to that is. Well, this petition now is up to like over 2,000 people, and it's got Grant Heslov on it, Ampa's president, Janet Yang, Jason Blum, Dee Dee Gardner, all these people are on there. I think producers, I have a lot of producers complain to me that they feel like no one knows what they do, but it's because they do everything, you know, and they are there from the beginning to the end, and they're often the last paid, which is something I learned recently. Independent producers do not often get paid. And if the project is busted, then you may not get paid at all. And so it really is kind of a speculative living, and so I think this symbolic gesture of removing the P, I think, would alleviate some of their insecurity. 
obvious. <laughs> All right, please, we're going to welcome our surprise guest is Tom Quinn of Neon. Here he is. And you all, you all know Parasite, the Oscar winner, the global hit. I think it got to 253 million or something. Correct me if I'm wrong. You know that he did Spence, that Neon released Spencer, Palm Door winner, Titan, Portrait of a Lady on Fire, Palm Springs, Pig, and another Pig movie that I love called Gunda. <laughs> Brett Morgan's David Bowie doc, Moon Age Daydream, Oscar nominees, The Worst Person in the World, Fire of Love, Flea, The Beauty and the Bloodshed, and Triangle of Sadness, one of my favorites. That's an extraordinary list, and that's just part of it. So Ryan is going to start us off. Yeah, so I thought a good place to start, Tom, is now that the writer's strike is out of the way, and we seem to be, there seems to be some light at the end of the tunnel with the actor's strike, how exactly did the strikes affect you? I mean... Uh, I'm sure there's been many applications for waivers. You were able to bring Ferrari to Venice via a waiver. Um, and it just, it does feel like you have a really built-in advantage at these festivals. And particularly now that you've had, um, whether it was a movie you developed or acquired at the festival, you've had four consecutive Palma d'Or winners at Cannes. And so I wondered, what, how did the strikes affect you and what's next as we start to come out of that? The idea of an independent having a distributor having any advantage at all is is uh, somewhat surprising and, and not something I'm, I'm used to in any way shape or form but uh, I, I wouldn't really call it an advantage it's affected all of us this strike and simply because we were able to secure waivers for films that were completed that were going to festivals uh, that had release dates you know th the reality is is uh, you know actors in solidarity want to band together with their their fellow actors regardless of it being an independent film or not or being distributed by an independent distributor and so the idea of premiering world premiering ferrari in in venice uh and bringing the entire cast and promoting as we usually would just honestly felt a little tone deaf but the reality was it was also a great way to stand in solidarity for uh what the interim agreement stood for that independents would happily sign up for the new agreement, the new terms of this deal. And, you know, Adam Driver, I think, did it flawlessly. He came to Venice, he walked the red carpet, he talked about the strike, and he used the platform as an opportunity to uh, highlight the issue. And I, and I thought it was perfectly done. And subsequently, you saw other actors do the same. Um, we were lucky that all of our productions that were uh, in process were uh, immediately waived and or at the tail end of their production. Um, and our new productions uh, were always slated for Q1. So uh, I think one of them will secure an interim agreement once we have our start date uh, this week. Uh, but the director of that film was an avid supporter of the, the idea of unionization across all industries. And so it wouldn't have made sense regardless uh, with or without the MPT agreeing to the WGA term. So um, it's, it's been very strange. And, and you know, the thing that I, I don't hear talked about a lot, and, and I can see it certainly in LA, that the, the ripple effect of what the industry can impact across other industries local restaurants, um, catering, anything that goes well beyond the basic idea of production, you know, and, and I think 
that that's a huge massive loss over the course of this strike and so you know i'm, I'm very happy to see that there's been some movement and uh, look forward to the entire industry getting back to work because our success is cross-pollinated with everybody else's success, so. Amen to that. When they do get back into production, I understand there's gonna be uh, a real log jam. Um, is that gonna push your independent productions down the list of priorities as, as things go forward and everybody's fighting for the studios and fighting for the talent? Um, we, we have three upcoming productions, uh, all by incredible filmmakers, well-known, auteurs and you know beacons of, of of the industry and so these are projects that that are moving forward uh as as they are originally planned um you know i do think there will be some shifting across maybe some of the second tier casting based on uh other opportunities that 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 arise but but our a-list cast across all of these productions are going to be the same so how do you i mean these releases reflect such a wide range of taste and i think Tom, um, what I love about you is that your taste is so specific and and it ranges around and you fight for your movies, you know, no matter what, whether anyone thinks they're commercial or not, you're you're in there. You're going to you're going to fight for Apollo 11, whatever it is. Um, it, it is a very irrational Quixotean pursuit that uh, defies any business plan and is guttural it's instinctual, and there is a science to it. You have to build consensus across your team. Uh, you have to build consensus with your filmmaker. What are the appropriate expectations? Where are we going? And you know, sitting here at the New York Film Festival, you know, I've been doing this for 27 years, and the New York Film Festival always loomed so large. Uh, it was uptown, and I felt that there, there would never be any moment in my career where I would ascend to the place of having films in the New York Film Festival. It seemed like another world. It was almost elite in a way that I, I, I simply wasn't welcome there. And, and that was obviously just feeling like uh, an outsider in, in my own industry. And what I used to do is I used to go to Fantastic Fest in Austin, in Austin, Texas, which happened to overlap at the same time. And I, I began to love cinema in a way that became agnostic about uh, the country of origin, language, genre, and uh, size. And I really loved the exuberance and excitable young audience around uh, what were largely genre films. But I remember bringing an Errol Morris film there once, and it was the same excited response. And I, and I said, I thought to myself, this kind of energy needs to be in what the New York Film Festival I think, I think could evolve into. And so over the course of 20 plus years, uh, the New York Film Festival, for me, I feel at home here now, that the films that I absolutely adore and love, that I think one, embrace the power of cinema, have a clear point of view, can be political, but also you know, uh, pursue style and artistic merit in equal measure as those other things. No single one of those attributes is more important than the other. Uh, and it embraces classic cinema, and but but the difference is is that I feel that it moves forward in service of representing something about the future of cinema, not only in its audience. That I believe most of our films primarily appeal to an under thirty five audience, but also uh, I think represent you know whether it's Julia Ducourneau or um, 
Justine Trier, you know, you can look back across a whole host of, of cinema that's been represented here at the New York Film Festival or in theaters here in New York. And, and, in, and, and there's, there's a bridge between what is classic and what is new. And I think that that is, in a very long-winded explanation, the kinds of films that we are drawn to as a company at Neon. And yes, we, we do not follow the trend. We follow what we believe are filmmakers that are ultimately uh, really pushing cinema forward. I wanted to ask about you know, what is sort of um, Neon's ethos for the types of films it acquires, and maybe a good launch pad for that is a film playing at this festival, which is um, La Chimera, the Alice Rohrrocker film, which won the jury prize at Cannes. Um, Neon's going to be releasing it later this year. And you know her previous movie, Happy at Lazaro, uh, was at Netflix. So this is a new collaborator for Neon. So we, we uh, not, not unlike my last answer, you know, who are the filmmakers out there that are pushing cinema forward? And Alice is absolutely someone who represents you know, a neo-classical sort of Italian view of cinema, but also is completely futuristic in how she views where cinema is going. And the audience that's attracted to her, I think you'd be very surprised to find that there's a whole host of 25 to 30 year old cinephiles uh, around the world that are completely attracted to, to her movies. And so uh, big credit to Mason Spita, our, our director of development and acquisitions, who sought her out and, and uh, made it an absolute mission for her, for her next film to be on the neon slate. When we first launched Neon, one of those directors was Julia Ducourneau. We must absolutely 100% do whatever she wants to do next. And we went to Paris on a lark, met with her. I read the script, I have to be honest with you, I didn't understand a single thing about Titan. Didn't make any sense to me. Uh, she also said, I'm gonna cast Vincent London. I said, that doesn't make any sense to me either. She's like, I know him for 10 years, I will break him. And I was like, okay. We believe in you 100%, let's do this movie together. When I saw the movie, I couldn't sit down. I was literally running around our screening room and I just said, we've seen the future of cinema. This is something I've been waiting to see for 20 years. And she absolutely made the script. And Vincent Landau was brilliant. And so the idea of putting faith in our directors. Uh, you know, Alice is just lovely. I mean, an absolutely lovely individuals uh, in, in, in lovely individual and we are as attracted to our filmmakers as we are to their films and i remember her introducing her film in telluride and you know the way she incorporates her neighbors into her films she says you know my neighbors uh uh always ask me um is this movie going to be a real movie and, and and she's like well according to my neighbors lucky mare is not a real movie uh <laughs> But I, I just love that sentiment and humility and sort of humanist approach to what our business is. Well, maybe this neighbor's definition of what a real movie is is not the movie that we are looking for, right? <laughs> so Anatomy of a Fall is another one of, of your movies, another great performance by, by Sandra Huller. Um, what do you think the reason is that the French did not go for this one? It was well, in her political speech I, in Cannes? I don't... I. I, I think that's probably two to three podcasts worth of material. Uh, you know, we have, um, we've been the great beneficiary of being the French selection multiple times. Uh, you know, Julia de Canot's Titan and Saint-Omer uh, by Az Diop. Um, but you know, uh, Portrait of a Lady on Fire was not selected. Right. And 
Uh, it was the first year that I think they instituted the idea of the American distributors of the top three films that they select in front of seven delegates present your case. And while Lajli's film, Les Miserables, absolutely deserving, uh, was selected, was nominated, um, you know, I think it's a horribly broken process and this is the best version of it. But I also think it's absolutely, completely silly that one film would represent one country. I do believe that one film should be uh, certified to participate in the overall selection in the international category, uh, but it makes absolutely no sense. This is not Eurovision. It's not one song represents one country. And so the idea that the Golden Globe somehow has a better process where you could truly put together the five best international films really makes no sense to me. And that year, Portrait of a Lady on Fire was nominated as, as one of the five. So, you know, I, all I can say is I don't like the process. It feels somewhat humiliating to go present your case as if that's going to have some impact. Um, and uh, I have a lot of theories why it wasn't selected. The other film that was, that was selected, I do believe is a possible nominee, but I really did believe, and I will be completely honest about this, Anatomy of a Fall was the clear winner in the international category, and that's okay. We believe that the film is going to be a Best Picture nominee, Best Screenplay, Best Actress, Best Director, uh, and Best Editor. It is truly a big contender, and uh, you know, uh, I, I look forward to, to voters seeing the film. They're gonna love it. In fact, I know some of them who've seen it already and they, they do love it. Um, so uh, we're actually already up to the time where we're gonna be asking some questions from, from the audience. Uh, it's just going very fast here. Uh, anybody got a question? Raise your hand. Sure, right here. I'm dating myself a bit, but uh, I watched Norma Ray when I was really young. My mom walked, we walked out of there, my mom said, she will win the Academy Award, I promise. Is there any performance that you saw that you said they're definitely going to win or they're definitely going to be nominated that just stood out for sure to be nominated or Emma win? Stone. Emma Stone. Sorry. Emma, Emma Stone. Stone. In Poor Things. Yeah. Can't argue with that yeah, one. She's a lock to Do be you agree nominated. With that, Tom? I, I think she's a lock. I don't think the film works without her. And, and I, I honestly, it's one of those cases where I think in many ways, you know, uh, Yorgos owes a big debt of gratitude to her for. I think truly embodying that film. Where are you with theatrical releasing, uh, with how important it is for a movie to be in theaters and building up a word of mouth? And or do you have a more uh, agnostic, uh, kind of bespoke approach to figuring out what is the right way to release each movie? Well, everything we do at Neon is released theatrically, and uh, you know. We, we build bespoke release strategies around that, whether they platform, whether they launch on 200 prints day one, or whether you know, Ferrari's gonna launch on 2,000 plus prints Christmas day. Like we embrace all of the various release strategies. We also embrace, which we've been doing for a very long time, you know, in my previous iterations at uh, Radius and Magnolia, you know, we were collapsing windows well before it was fashionable or even thought to be uh, prudent and and we sort of reinvented the independent film industry by combining VOD with theatrical and it's worked beautifully here in the US and I still believe that 
We have so much more work to do in how we combine windows, but all in service of making the theatrical experience the, the, the best shelf space for, I think, building the profile uh, and, and ultimately downstream revenue for these movies. You have last question, Ryan? Oh, well, there is one I wanted to ask you just to, um, you know, I know some things are getting moved around, but there was one title that doesn't really date it yet that I'm curious about. Um, I'm, a, I'm a gay man obsessed with actresses, and so there's this movie Mother's Instinct uh, that I believe was an in-house production. We came onto that film early, and uh, it's, it's got an incredible cast, and we love the original film that it's based on. And so we, we are looking at a date in Q1 of next year, but we didn't want to qualify it this year since Anne Hathaway, I think, will already have two films that are in consideration. Yeah, the cast is Anne Hathaway and Jessica Chastain, so we're all very excited about that. And yes, and you have another Anne Hathaway film, Eileen, coming out at the very beginning of December, a movie I, I was crazy about at Sundance, which I is this... I not like uh, that You one. hated that movie. We will, yes. we will debate that one next month. Um, but it is this Otessa Moshfeg sort of lesbian noir film that um, is fabulous. It's, it's, it's absolutely great. The performances are, are fantastic. It's an old school noir thriller that, you know, this is the part of the podcast that I can't believe I've inserted myself into, that I'm stuck between you two guys, the, the pros and con of this movie. Um, but anyway, thanks for inviting me. I we'll really save it for it. later. <laughs> thank you for having, thank you for being here, Tom. Thank you, it was Tom. great. And thank you, New York Film Festival. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.